I really don't know why it is that all of us are so committed to the sea, except I think it's because in addition to the fact that the sea changes and the light changes and ships change, it's because we all come from the sea. And it is an interesting biological fact that all of us have in our veins the exact same percentage of salt in our blood that exists in the ocean. And therefore, we have salt in our blood, in our sweat, in our tears. We are tied to the ocean. And when we go back to the sea, whether it is to sail or to watch it, we are going back from whence we came. John F. Kennedy, 1962. I'm Blakely Thomas Aguilar, and this is Pop Culture Tech, an original podcast brought to you by VMware. The ocean. It covers 70% of our planet and is the home for an incredible 94% of all Earth's living species. Yet we've explored less than 5% of our oceans, a great mystery that awakened the imaginations of authors like Herman Melville and poets like Emily Dickinson. Trip to the beaches for me are more like an annual spiritual pilgrimage. My parents met in Guam, a tiny U.S. territory in Micronesia in the Western Pacific Ocean. And even though I left there before I was nine months old, the call of the ocean, the sandy beaches, the salty breeze, the mysterious creatures, the melodic whisper of tides, makes me feel like I'm home again. But even my experience with ocean is like a tiny splatter of paint on a Jackson Pollock. Can I really say I've been in the ocean or know the ocean when I've never journeyed farther than 100 miles from its shore? Unfortunately, recent revelations tell me that my impact on our oceans is larger and wider than I can fathom, and not in a good way. We're slowly, methodically destroying the ocean. In partnership with the World Economic Forum, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation predicts that by 2050, plastics in the ocean will outweigh fish. Already today, the ocean is filled with about 165 million tons of plastic. I love Rebecca Harrington's powerful yet absolutely terrifying comparison. That's 25 times heavier than the Great Pyramid of Pisa. Yet even with these stats out in the media entering into our human consciousness, the MacArthur Foundation says plastics production will continue to rise as we consume and discard more and more plastics. It's the equivalent of dumping contents of one garbage truck into the ocean every minute leading us to the brink of oceanic disaster by 2050. The good news is that awareness is spreading, a movement that is quickly changing from academic concern to a full-on pop culture-fueled call to action. Celebrities are leading the charge, raising funds and supporting leading causes. Social influencers are raising awareness, helping drive their followers to take action. Socially aware companies are working to significantly reduce single-use plastics, from restaurants denying you a straw to giant corporations changing their packaging and shipping methods. Governments are also beginning to wake up and draft regulations to foster a more circular economy. But as we know, change at such a massive scale takes time, and we only have 30 years before we reach the point of no return. 
What do we do about the plastics in the oceans now? And how do we stop more plastics from entering our oceans via rivers and waterways? The answer, you're going to like it. It's robots. Robots aren't all R2-D2 or Johnny Five Alive. Robotics have a wide implication across multiple fields of discipline and industry. The same is true in the fight against ocean pollution. But before we jump into the oceans, let's look at how the plastics and other pollutants get into the ocean in the first place and the amazing efforts being taken to bring rivers back to life. I asked Nick Wesley of Urban Rivers in Chicago to help shed some light. I am the co-founder of Urban Rivers, and basically our goal is to kind of rethink how we utilize uh, the rivers within our cities. So we do that in a couple different ways, but one is installing gardens and habitat installations. Um, one term we like to use is habit hacking, so building devices that, that somehow enhance the habitat or the area within, and then also trying to kind of push the bounds on how um, people can interact with these systems. Our river itself used to be used to completely lack fish. In 1970, I believe there was a survey done where seven species of fish were, were known to live in the Chicago River, which is abysmal. Recently, they've been able to see that an increase in about 70 different species uh, throughout the, the Chicago River, which I think is a great sign in how it's progressing, but we still have a long way to go to really create an actual ecosystem. Uh, that resembles something in a natural. One thing that was a surprising challenge when we started this was the amount of regulation around the rivers that that kind of was a barrier to groups like ours getting in involved. You know, the idea of putting floating wetland modules or floating gardens in in the river isn't a new one. There are other groups throughout the world who have, who have done these things and and had different. Uh, uh, levels of success. But when we started trying to figure out how do we actually get this thing in, there was, at first it was very uh, opaque in, in what types of permits we need, what types of groups we need buy-in from. And that took a long time to actually figure out. And once we did, it's still, there's there's five different agencies we have to get a permit from in order to actually put this thing in the water. And that was a, a real big challenge and a real big costs actually to, to start making these types of interventions. And so I think that for, for cities around the world to find, to streamline and, and optimize these, these types of um, rules around groups adding different habitats and different structures, I think that's one thing that could really be improved on and, and help enable more grassroots organizations to just start start testing out different different theories and, and, and adding different habitats to there. Really early on in our organization, you know, we, you can imagine like most groups and, and, and people in general, we have many more ideas than time uh, to execute. So it really early on, we thought about this idea of removing some of these plastics from our systems with what, what we coined at the time was Nurdle the turtle. So we, we talked about nurdles, which are just tiny pieces of plastic, um, and creating a some sort of robotic turtle to to drive around and get rid of these things. And the idea kind of sat on the back burner as we started to ramp up putting our gardens in in 2017. And 
once we had our gardens in, we found we would get inundated with trash fairly regularly. And so we were thinking, okay, well, what can we do about this? You know, there's, we have, anytime you have a sharp corner, periodically it will fill up with, with garbage that's floating throughout the river. And so the first kind of, uh, the first step was to have uh, us and volunteers go out and remove the trash. So we had people going out every day, scooping up trash and, and getting rid of it. But what we found in, in our system is the flow isn't always the same. So normally it flows north to south, but occasionally depending on the wind and depending on uh, the, the locks that are controlled by the water reclamation district, the flow would change. And so you might go out one morning, remove a couple pieces of trash, and two hours later, it will be filled with trash. And then two hours after that, it'll be completely gone. So we realized we need some sort of solution, which is always on to remove this thing. So we thought about, okay, let's make a, some sort of remote control boat that we could drive around and, and remove this trash. And then when thinking about that, you think, okay, well, how do we make sure that people are able to use it all the time? How do we make sure that when trash is there, somebody can, has the ability to go and, and, and remove it? And so that's kind of where the idea of creating something that's more or less a game, which anybody could contribute to, to uh, came up and kind of crowdsourcing the volunteerism of people and, and having people be enabled to spend five minutes and actually do a vital function of removing this, this stuff from the river. So that, that all happened in about 20, 2018 was when we kind of decided, okay, let's go for this. Let's, let's do this. So a user will log onto the site and drive the robots around. There's a camera mounted on it. They can drive it around and it has a little, it basically as you go over trash, it pulls it into its, its belly. And then once after a certain period of time, you go back to a home base where it's then emptied out. Uh, so it allows just basically short, short trips where people will remove trash, bring it back and then evacuate the trash and, and start again. The idea of crowdsourcing isn't new for startups and nonprofits. With limited budgets, you have to solicit community involvement. I just hadn't thought about it for helping drive a robotic trash can through the Chicago River. But there's a lot of technological effort and expertise that goes into a project like this. It's not just the hardware, it's custom software, and then the communications network that connects the robot to the control system, and then out to the user's computer and back again. Uh, basically, we have, we have a website set up uh, built in in Node.js where people can then send commands, um, and those commands are then sent to a server on on top of a, a, a building near the Chicago River, and from there, there's an antenna which shoots down to a boathouse, which is at river level where the bot is, and then those commands are then sent to the robots, uh, which then uses a, a Raspberry Pi and an Arduino to translate it into motor actions. And then the video is, goes back the same way. So we had, we had various volunteers who uh, would come in and be, be a part of building these things out, prototyping different things, thinking about different ways to kind of, to attack this problem. But it's all, all done by basically highly dedicated volunteers. What we want to do is, you know, this thing is, is open source. So we want people to start creating their own versions, modifying it, and implementing these in other parts of the parts of the world. 
I think that this is there's an extreme need for removing trash and plastics from rivers and waterways in general. And I think that this tool is a, is a great solution. On on top of that, you know, we're kind of at an interesting time where we have the, the technology is progressed to a point where it's relatively cheap to do something like this. And to more more specifically to have streaming low latency video within a natural environment and then to be able to interact with that. So I think this idea and concept of uh, of having immersive robots within environments is really cool. And I think there's a lot of different ways that people are going to start to engage in this in the future and, and create more or less telepresence within ecosystems. The rivers are a public trust, so they're kind of everyone's responsibility at the same time. So I think it's extraordinarily important to find other groups and other individuals and agencies who want to contribute to the betterment of our rivers and really bring them together and and give them a, a platform where their work can then make a real difference in our ecosystem. Urban Rivers is one of many activist organizations fighting against river pollution all over the world. And while their efforts help stop pollution from entering the ocean, how do we clean up the plastics already at sea? You guessed it, robots. Clear Blue Sea is one of many organizations tackling pollution and ocean cleanup with technology. Susan Baer sheds light on the world's need and Clear Blue Sea's inspiring mission. So I have been mentoring a company for about seven years that was designing a um, autonomous sailboat that could fold its sails down and become a submarine. Won them a, a $3 million grant so they could build a prototype for the Defense Department, and those guys are doing fine. Well, one of the engineers there had said, well, because he lived in Hawaii, he's like, the plastic problem in Hawaii is getting worse and worse. And, you know, if we can make an autonomous vessel go from sailing to submerged, we should be able to use similar technology to clean up ocean plastic. When we started thinking about this, the guy from this previous company had envisioned um, a robot that had forks and nets and wing sails and then when Jessica said she was brought on to do engineering, we actually both do engineering and we both do business management, as it turns out. Then she re-architected the robot so it'd be much more sustainable, marine mammal friendly, more reliable out in the ocean. And we actually began to learn more and more about ocean plastic. And at that time, the UN issued its first microplastics report. It was like 256 pages that went into great depth about the types of plastic in terms of size and composition and location, as well as the damage to the environment. And neither one of us knew it was as bad. We thought it was bad, but it was even worse than we thought. The way we characterize the problem based on other people's research is there's 8 million metric tons of plastic that go into the ocean every year. And it never biodegrades or dissolves or anything. All it can do in that harsh climate is break into smaller and smaller pieces. So microplastic is considered to be about five millimeters. But now they know about nanoplastic, 
which is even smaller. And it turns out that there's a creature in the ocean for every size of plastic waste. So there's plankton eating nanoplastic, you know, and little fish eating microplastic. And then, of course, bigger fish eating the little fish with microplastic. But recently, a couple of whales washed up in Southeast Asia. Their stomachs were full of plastic bags and plastic this, that, and the other, and that's how they died. And the same thing with a dolphin in Florida. And so with fish eating microplastic, because all these animals um, believe if it's in the water, it must be food, so let's eat it, that when we ingest fish for dinner, even from other sources as well, we likely have microplastics in our human systems as well. So the the amount of plastic going into the ocean has yet to be decreased. And all it's done is accumulated more and more into parts of the ocean called gyres where the currents kind of form an eddy. So that's where it amasses. And one of the largest gyres in the Pacific is estimated to be the size of Texas. So you can imagine if the state of Texas was like one big lake and it was full of tons and tons of plastic. Like if Lake Superior was like that, we would have to clean it up. But because these gyres are in the middle of the oceans where no one really sees them, people aren't aware that it exists. Getting out into these remote ocean regions to clean up the massive plastic patches is expensive, resource intensive, and extremely dangerous. Here's where organizations like Clear Blue Sea believes technology can help. And help comes in the form of a giant floating robot that looks like a hedgehog. Clear Blue Sea's Jessica Gotting tells us more. Clear Blue Sea's innovation is called FRED, the floating robot for eliminating debris. Um, in the grand scheme of things, FRED doesn't have to be that smart of a robot, uh, but it has a really hard environment um, in which to survive. Um, traditional cleanups have been all like human-based. It's very expensive to get people out um, in the ocean and marine environments. Um, It can be dangerous. Um, It's not necessarily very efficient. And so we feel like a robot is the right kind of solution for this kind of problem. Um, So Fred was born, as Susan said, kind of of thinking about these, these ocean technologies that were starting to get better and better. So Um, We've got robot technologies that are getting better, um, data communication technologies that are getting better even out at sea, Um, solar panels and renewable energies are getting better, uh, which would be necessary to have something out um, in the middle of the ocean essentially operating on its own at all times. Um, And we we were even discovering products like marine conveyor belts that already exist. So Fred was invented more as like an intersection of technologies that already exist. It was just a matter of putting them together to address the problem of floating plastics. Um, How we were able to make advancements with Fred um, is actually kind of an interesting thing. Being a nonprofit startup, um, we have very, very minimal um, self-funding that we started with. And we really thought it was important to make uh, progress to, to form an engineering baseline and prove that this idea could work instead of just you know, claiming that it works. So what we did is we started approaching uh, local universities here in San Diego, and we saw that there was interest for the senior design projects <clears throat> in various engineering schools that where they needed a meaningful project to do, and we needed work to be done by people who were doing engineering. 
And with between Susan's and my background, we could mentor these teams. So we were giving back to the students as well, overseeing their projects and teaching them um, the best ways to do project planning or best engineering practices. And in return, they were doing work for us, um, actually developing, helping us develop subsystems, um, building subsystems, building even many FREDs. Um, we just had two of our teams demo um, their, we call them mini FRED robots. We've got the two mini prototypes that we're doing. Um, the next phase is to scale up and build more like a 20 foot size uh, FRED. And then the final FREDs that we're going to be building uh, for a pilot around Hawaii, we're expecting them to be about 100 feet long, kind of the bigger, the better in the ocean. But machines bring up a whole other question. If the goal is to clean up the ocean, does an ocean cleaning machine that requires fuel contribute pollution back into the very ocean it's trying to save? So these robots they are solar powered there is no fossil fuel so they're highly sustainable they travel at two knots which is slow so marine mammals can get out of the way plus we have pinger technology to let the marine mammals know hey we're out here because of the slow speed then where plastic is dense we have booms out in the front that guide the trash up a conveyor belt and into a bin when the bin is full, it automatically closes. Then Fred goes to a mothership, unloads the bin, gets preventative maintenance and repairs, and goes out to garbage duty again. Now, in order to make that all happen, and why we call it a semi-autonomous robot, is it can do its garbage cleanup operations pretty much on its own and with some not really artificial intelligence, but close to it make sure that the Fred's like don't bump into each other or bump into any other ships. But if when the bins get full or if a big storm approaches, then human beings staffing a mission control center will take over the propulsion and navigation of the Fred's and have them go to a specific place and or do a specific thing. Like in storms, it can batten down so that it can weather them as best as possible. It's all about raising awareness of this problem. Uh, we see it more and more in the media, but I'm still surprised every day to meet people who haven't heard of ocean plastic pollution or that plastic is a problem. They don't understand why things like the bag ban or the straw ban are happening. So the more people can raise awareness, the better. So can a robot really clean up our oceans and waterways? It's absolutely an exciting opportunity for the conservation movement. But it's clear that robots like Fred have a lot of work to do cleaning up what's already there. With oceans covering 70% of our planet, we're in danger of reaching a point of no return. To save our oceans and all those little future humans running around our beautiful planet, we need to wake up and smell the plastics. I'm Blakely Thomas Aguilar, and this is Pop Culture Tech. I want to thank our amazing guests for their contribution to our podcast and the world. Jessica Gottdank and Susan Baer of Clear Blue Sea, and Nick Wesley of Urban Rivers. Do the world a favor and look them up online, and find folks in your local communities to support. Our podcast is brought to you by VMware, the software that connects, automates, and secures the world's digital infrastructure. Learn more about our podcast at vmware.com forward slash radius. 
And you can follow me and ask questions about this podcast at Blakely Ags on Twitter. Until next time, pop culture fans. Thank you.